What a tremendous honor it is to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, let us join in prayer before we do so. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word, to teach, and to, to just share the goodness and faithfulness of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would go before us. Uh, Lord, that you would have uh, our attention. Lord, that our, our soul would be captivated by your truth. And Lord, the same Spirit of God uh, would not only reveal those truths to us, uh, but he will also give us desire and power to live in those truths. So Lord, we expect and anticipate you to do wonderful things, things that we cannot do on our own. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, we're going to be in verses 137 through 144 this morning. If you are joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 572, 572. As you're turning uh, to that passage, uh, I just want to say a word of thank you for all those who served uh, sacrificially this past Friday. We were able to, to serve the West Ashley football team and uh, their staff uh, before their game. And so what a tremendous opportunity, not only to, to feed them with food, but to feed them with uh, the truth of God's word and just to sing songs of praises to the Lord. And so very, very thankful for that. We are in, uh, towards the end really, we are in part 18 of a 22-part uh, sermon series walking through uh, this amazing chapter in the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of all the Bible. It's consisted of 176 verses. We do not know who uh, the actual psalmist was. It's possible it was Daniel or Hezekiah or Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, we don't know for sure. It could be David. Uh, but what we do know in this particular chapter is that the central focus is on God and the Word of God. And that is important. Uh, and so what we have seen in this particular chapter is uh, God and His grace, the way that He lays it out, is He wants us to remember that. Right? And so uh, each stanza, there's 22 stanzas consisting of eight verses each. Each stanza begins with a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. And not only does that uh, stanza begin with that Hebrew letter of the alphabet, each verse in that stanza corresponds with that same Hebrew letter. And so every week we've been looking at that. And so this, uh, this morning we look at the Hebrew letter Sade, Sade, and you'll see on the right-hand side, again, Hebrew language right to left, every verse in that particular uh, stanza begins with that same uh, letter. And the picture is kind of like somebody on their knees with their hands up, right? That's the picture that I see. Uh, the, the Hebrew letter Sade uh, speaks of righteousness. Righteousness. And, and what the psalmist understands is that the only way that he can stand before the Lord righteous and the only way that he can live rightly comes from God and his holy word. In fact, this word righteous uh, is a central theme of this passage. In eight verses, some form of the word righteous occurs five times. And so that's what we're going to study this morning. And so beginning in one, uh, verse 137 through one, uh, 144, the scripture says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. What an amazing passage. 
In that entire passage, the psalmist gives one request, and that request is found at the end of verse 44. He says, give me understanding that I may live. And the verb tense here for that word give is a word of God caused me. God caused me to understand so that I can live. Again, he's communicating to us that the only way that he can be right with God, the only way that he can live rightly before God is that if God causes him to to have understanding so that he can live. And the same is true for us today. And so through this passage, we are going to see three truths that you and I prayerfully will understand and, and be reminded of as we walk through it. The first truth that we see this morning is that God is righteous. God is righteous. Right out of the gates, the psalmist makes that bold declaration, right? It's a bold statement of faith and truth. He says in the first part of verse uh, 137, Righteous are you, O Lord. And the word Lord here is the Hebrew word Yahweh, right? It's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is the great I Am. There is no one like Him. He is above all things. He is self-sufficient. He is holy. He is perfect. He is blameless. He is absolute. He is eternal. He is judge. He is wisdom. He is love. He is truth. He is glory. He is life. He is mercy. He is grace. He is righteous. That is the Lord that he is talking about. This is who he is. This is his character. And the psalmist says this in verse 142, the first part. He says, your righteousness is righteous forever. In other words, God's character does not change. His character will never wear out. It will never become obsolete. There is no need for an updated version, right? I mean, all the time, we we have these needs for updates with all the stuff that we have. When it comes to God's character, there is no need for an update. It is the standard, the absolute standard, the righteous standard of God. He is the absolute source and standard for everything that is right, and everything he does is righteous. One, ver, uh, Psalm 145, verse 17, the scripture says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God always knows what is best, and God always does what is best. Righteous is he, right? It's who he is. It's what he does. Psalm 9, verse 7 through 8 says this, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with what? With righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So the scripture is telling us that God is what? He is the ultimate judge, and he always judges rightly. He is perfect in every way. And when we think about the Lord the righteous Lord, we, we immediately need to think about his one and only son, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 22, he, he, Jesus, has committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus is the righteous one, right? Praise be to God for that. And now why is this important? Because God is righteous, he demands what? He demands righteousness. And without Christ, The scripture tells us that no one is righteous. The apostle Paul writing about this in Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 says this, as it is written, and here he's quoting from Psalm uh, chapter 14, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is reminding us that all of humanity has the same problem. 
We have a sin problem. Because we have a sin problem, we are cut off from God. Our relationship with God has been broken. And no matter how hard we try, it's never going to be good enough. If we fail at one point, the scripture says, we have failed at it all, right? In thought or in uh, deed. And God will judge rightly. And that judgment to all of humanity is what? Guilty. And the punishment of that guilt is eternal wrath from God, eternal separation from God. But here is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the good news. The good news is this. In Christ, in Christ, I am righteous. As a father of Christ, that is the truth that we need to understand. That is the truth that we need to live by. That in Christ, I am righteous. God not only is the standard for righteousness, in Christ, he gifts us with his righteousness. What God requires, Christ provides. Romans 3, 21 through 27. This is an amazing passage. The scripture says, but now, and this is the breath air of scripture, right? But now, there's a contrast. This is what the human race needs. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, from Genesis to Malachi, God's word prophetically and written has declared that the Messiah is coming. In other words, the righteousness that you need, the righteousness that I need is not going to come from myself. It's going to come from somewhere else. It's going to come from the Lord. And how is that righteousness coming? Verse 22, the scripture says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is what? There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of us are held into captivity and bondage because of our sin. Because there is unrighteousness in our life. Guess what? We are separated from God. But God in his grace sends Jesus Christ on a rescue mission to fix what we broke. And how does he do it? Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word is a substitute by his blood to be received. How? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance and his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? The just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the, that's the gospel. God sent forth his son to be a propitiation, to be our substitute. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, God forever was satisfied with his sacrifice. And no longer are we held to the bondage of our sin. In wrath of God, we have been set free. Jesus has paid our full debt. Positionally, for eternity, we are declared right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. So the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. We, as New Testament saints, we look back to the cross, right? That the cross is the central way. And why did he do it this way? Why did God remove our performance from the equation? And praise God he did that. Why did he do it? Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but the law of faith. This is grace in these verses. God in his grace initiated something that we didn't even want, right? And God accomplished something we could not do in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a divine act of his amazing grace. Not my performance, but based on his perfection. Where Jesus was innocent and was gifted death, you and I are guilty and we have been gifted life. 
where Jesus was righteous and was undressed at the cross. You and I are sinners and we have been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. How? By grace through faith in Jesus. Lord, cause me to understand that God is righteous and in Christ I am righteous. The second thing that we see in our passage is God's word is righteous. God's word is righteous. And notice the psalmist cannot disconnect the fact that God is righteous and the very fact that his word is righteous. Those things go together. Uh, In verse uh, 137, the second part, he says, and right are your rules. The word right here refers to something that is straight, something that is upright, meaning it's impossible for God's word to lead us astray, right? That's important. God's word will never lead us astray. It will never steer us off course. The psalmist continues in verse 138. He says, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. The word appointed here means to command. And what is it that the Lord has commanded? The scripture says that he has commanded his promises. This means that every promise that God has mentioned will be fulfilled, right? They will be fulfilled. And how does he do it? In righteousness and in faithfulness. I love the word in there. It means to be marked by. So every promise that God fulfills is going to be marked by his righteousness, his character, and his uh, faithfulness. The psalmist continues in verse 140, the first part. He says, your promise is well tried. The word tried there means to be tested, it means to be pure, it means to be without mistake, without uh, error. And this is what we see in the Bible. No matter what, God is always faithful, right? I mean, understand the cycle. The constant cycle of the Bible is what? God makes a promise, right? God's people are unfaithful, and God does what? He keeps his promises, right? That is the cycle of the Bible. God is always committed to his word. He's always committed uh, to his uh, character. The psalmist says in verse 142, your law is true. The word true means reliable. It is stable. It means that the truth of God's word is the foundation of my life. The psalmist continues in verse 144, the first part. He says, your testimonies are righteous forever. God's word is dependable, always relevant. It's never outdated, right? I mean, everybody is, most people in our society are saying, God's word is ancient, right? It's archaic. God's word says something different, right? God's word is always relevant, is always true. It's always dependable. It lasts forever. And the psalmist already recognized this. Uh, remember what the psalmist said in 119 verses 90 and 91. He says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. Uh, you have established the earth and it stands fast. So in other words, despite the wickedness of this world, God's word would not be corrupted. God's promises will not be stopped. He is forever faithful. The same word that sustained the generations of the past is the same word that's going to sustain this generation. It's the same word that will sustain the next generation. He goes on to say in verse 91, by your appointment, by your sovereignty, by your authority, they stand this day for all things are your servants. This is the power of God's righteous word. It reminds me of what happened uh, some 2,000 years ago. Uh, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, right before his crucifixion. Uh, the scripture says in John, uh, verse eight, uh, chapter, John chapter 18, verse 37, 38, he says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are the king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, This is the question of the day. What is truth? That is a question that every single one of us has to answer. What is truth? For Pilate, truth was power. Truth was politics. 
Truth was his resources. Truth was his army and his ability. He's finding truth in the things of the world, things that are temporal, things that do not last, things that do change, things that do get corrupted. And the same is true for many in the world today. Truth is what you want it to be. And the same truth that you see today is a different truth tomorrow based on how you feel and what you want to enter into your life. That is what the world is drawn to. Relative truth. It changes all the time. And what does it do? It causes chaos. It causes disruption. It's not truth at all. That's what the scripture is teaching us. And it's that mindset that the people of the world... That, that truth breeds what? It breeds deception, it breeds lying, it breeds hatred and bitterness. Why? Because it expresses the heart of man. Romans 3, 13 through 14, the scripture says this, and uh, Paul is quoting from Psalm uh, chapter 5, verse 9 he, here. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So where God speaks truth, the human heart does what? It speaks deception, death, and corruption. The spreading of lies. And then he quotes Psalm 140, verse 3. The venom of, of asp is under their lips. Deadly poison. Poison that can kill quickly. That's the power of the tongue, right? Psalm 10, verse 7 is what he's quoting in verse 14. He says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, when we think about this idea of curses and bitterness, he's, he's not focusing on profanity, right? It's not what he's, you know, you said a curse word. It's deeper than that, far deeper than that. When, when the scripture talks about uh, the, the unredeemed mouth, the mouth that we enter into when we're born, the full of curses and bitterness, he's talking about our default nature of the human heart is to express words of bitterness and ill will towards other people, right? That, that's what comes from our hearts. This is what the world offers. This is what Pilate is buying into. Pilate is always about saving himself, right? What's best for me? That's what, he, if you look at the story of the crucifixion and Pilate's involvement of it, he wants nothing of it, right? He wants to wash his hands. He wants to be the people pleaser in the crowd, but he cannot do it. He must make a decision. The reality is, right before Pilate, truth was right before his eyes, right? Jesus is standing right before him. And you and I today, when we think about God's word, truth, we have God's written word and we have God's revealed word and the finished work of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us today? In Christ, I can trust him. In Christ, I can trust him. You know, God didn't have to speak. God didn't have to reveal himself. God didn't have to come to us through the work of Jesus Christ, but he did. He fulfilled every promise, proving that he can be trusted. David speaks of this in Psalm 18, verse 30. He says, this God his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And the context here is David is running for his life, right? King Saul is trying to attack him. And David says, though this life is not easy, where is my refuge? Where is my strength? Where is my trust? It is in the word of the Lord. You know, the word of our world casts doubt. If you are finding your stability in the voice of the world, you will have doubt, you will have great insecurity, right? But when you trust in the word of the Lord, there is truth, there is security, and that's what Jesus prays over his disciples. In John 17, when he's having that, those last moments with his father, right before he goes to the cross, he's praying for his disciples, and he says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Why? Because your word is truth. This is Jesus' disciples' 
for or Jesus's prayer and blessing for his disciples. Why? Because nothing is more relevant to life, to your relationships, to your struggles, to your identity than the God of the Word and the Word of God. That's what Jesus is telling us. Lord, sanctify my life, my mind, my emotions, my body based on the Word of the Lord. How can I overcome the pressures and stressors of life? Where do we turn to for hope? We turn to the word of the Lord. Jesus, in John 16, says, I have said these things to you. I have spoken truth to you that in me you may have peace. In other words, that you will rest in my truth. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, have hope. I have overcome the world. What upholds us in the pressure cooker of life? It is the truth. It is the word of the Lord. What gets us out of places of confusion and darkness? It is the word of the Lord. The truth of God's word, he can be trusted. That's why the scripture says that we are to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because the truth of God's word tells us that he cares for us. And so the psalmist is praying, Lord, cause me to understand that your word is righteous and we in Christ can trust him. The third truth that we find in our passage this morning is God is committed to his righteousness. God is committed uh, to his righteousness. Uh, notice what the psalmist says in one, uh, verse 139. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forgot your words. So the, the psalmist is announcing something. He's declaring his passion to protect and to honor the righteousness of God. He has a singular focus in his life. He, he's consumed by the holiness of God. And, and he is surrounded by who? The scripture says he is surrounded by those who forget your words. This doesn't mean that they have some kind of mental amnesia. That's not what it's talking about. It's the word uh, forget talks about they have trampled your word. They have rejected your honor. They have distorted your truth. They refuse to honor you. That's the word forget here. He is jealous for God's glory to be seen. It captivates his spirit. And guess what? The psalmist in Psalm 119 is just a small picture. It is a picture of the one to come. Jesus Christ. Jesus was consumed with the honor of God's holy name. I love what happens in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, God's people, they they come to Jerusalem during that time of Passover. Uh, they're, they're, They're to go to the temple, and in the temple they are to celebrate and to remember and be reminded of all that God has done for them in the past, all his faithfulness. They are to to worship the Lord there. And during this time, this holy time, they're not worshiping the Lord. In fact, they're, they're demeaning and undercutting the very glory of the Lord. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes into the temple and with righteous anger, he drives all the people out. He turns over all the tables. And it's in that moment that the disciples' response is found in John chapter 2, verse 17. And here they're quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9. His disciples remembered what was written. And what was written? Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed and committed to God's holy name. Committed to it. And when you look back to Psalm 119... The psalmist says in verse 140, he says, your promise is well tried and your servant does what? He loves it. He absolutely loves it. Even in the face of affliction and suffering, he is committed to the character of God. 
Psalm 140, uh, 119, verse 141, he goes on to say, I, uh, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Now, when the psalmist says, I'm small, he's not saying I'm 4'11". I'm not, old enough, I'm not tall enough to ride all the rides at the fair. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in the eyes of those around me, I'm, I'm insignificant. I, I, I don't matter to them. I'm despised. I'm, I'm rejected by those around me. And again, the psalmist is just a picture of the one to come. Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah prophesies 700 years before the birth of Jesus and says this in Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom uh, men hid their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Again, everything is pointing to Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 143, he says, Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. The idea of trouble here speaks of uh, the pressure that comes from the outside. Uh, The word anguish communicates uh, the turmoil and the great tribulation that comes from the inside. And the scripture says that, that it found me out. It captured me. It apprehended me. But where is the psalmist's joy? Where is the psalmist's delight? It is in the Lord. Again, The psalmist is giving us just a small picture of the one to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the moment of great trouble, great anguish, when those things captured him, when those things apprehended him, what did he choose to do? How committed was he to the righteousness of the Lord? Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God do you think Jesus was committed to the righteousness of God Jesus ran a race that took him to the cross but ended at a throne he joyfully embraced the father's will in providing redemption for sinners counting the shame as nothing and his father has appropriately honored him the name above all names where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is Lord. You see, Jesus was satisfied with the will of his Father, and in obedience, he obeyed it, and the result was joy. Jesus had great joy. Now, what's the contrast here? The contrast is the people of the world were not committed to the righteousness of God, right? In fact, instead of worshiping our Creator, the scripture says that we worship the created things, right? Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. The scripture says, uh, because of this, because we choose to not worship the creator, but the created things, the scripture says, therefore God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies uh, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So what does this mean for us today? What what is the good news that we need to understand today? In Christ, I can live righteously. Apart from Christ, I have no hope to live rightly before the Lord, right? Apart from Christ, this is me in verses 24 and 25. In fact, you read Romans chapter uh, 1. Romans 1 to Romans 3 is a bleak picture about humanity apart from Christ. But the breath of fresh air, again, is but God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation uh, for our sins. So the scripture talks about that in Christ, I can live righteous. So it's not just positionally am I right with God forever, but 
but because of Christ's work in my life and my submission to him, positionally, practically, I can live rightly as well. The righteousness of Christ can be lived in me and through me. Titus 2, Paul speaks of this to Titus in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Listen to the beauty of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So in other words, the grace of God just doesn't save us from our sins. It's the grace of God that empowers us to do what? To live rightly. We have new life in Christ. We have a new master. We have a new identity, right? We are to renounce by faith the old way of life. And what is our aim? He talks about it in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, committed to the righteousness of God. You see, verses 13 and 14 talk about the great expectation, the great anticipation of Jesus' second coming the day when he will fully complete everything he started. And by grace, through faith, what is our aim? Our aim is to live moment by moment of every single day prepared for that day. Prepared to meet our king. There is no greater freedom than living out the life that God has for us in Christ. But the reality is you cannot do it on your own. Can't do it. That's why Peter, when he's writing to the early church in 2 Peter 1, he says this, his divine power So God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, he has gifted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers, you may become participants of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What gives us victory over our sinful desires? Is it me? Is it you? No, it's the divine power of God's spirit living in us. And guess what? 1 John chapter 2 tells us that not only do we have the power not to sin because of Christ's works in us, but we also have an advocate on our side when we do sin, right? Our advocate is Jesus Christ. He is the great restorer of our life. You know, the reality is all of us are going to be consumed by something or someone, right? Let us be consumed by the work of Jesus Christ. Let us be consumed by the holiness of God. Choose to be humble and sensitive to the things of the Lord. Choose to be sensitive and humble to the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings on your life. And the moment that that conviction comes, immediately confess it, repent of it, and have a renewed trust in the gospel. Make your request be that of the psalmist in Psalm 144. Give me understanding. Cause me to understand that I may live. Think about that question, that statement. God, give me understanding that I may live, that I truly will live the eternal abundant life that Christ has for me. So maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Man, ask the Lord, plead with, awaken my soul. Awaken my soul to believe that God, you are righteous and my only hope for righteousness comes from your son, Jesus Christ. Let your request be, God, awaken my soul.